joy to be here and to be together and look towards the Word of God. And you can take your copy of God's Word and open up to Revelation chapter 9. We're, we're willing to finish chapter 9 and I think finish chapter 10 as well um, and see the connection of what the Lord is doing in the future as he brings all things underneath his control. That's the Lord's blessing before we begin. Lord, we do ask now that uh, your words would be the things communicated uh, through even myself as I present them, as we digest them, think through them. Even as we see the picture in the text this morning of John taking the little scroll and eating it, that we in that same way would take your word and we would internalize it through our lives in the way that we live. We ask this in his name. Amen. I don't know if many of your journeys have been similar to mine. Um, but there's been a journey for me throughout my life on the, the realm of the things that I eat. And so if you had found me a number of years ago, I'd be one who, if you put mayonnaise on anything, I wouldn't care if you were my own mother, I just wouldn't eat it. I even had a weird obsession where I hated potatoes, which now sounds insane. And then I remember actually mother at one point saying, well, you know, french fries are potatoes. Like, okay, maybe I don't hate them as long as you fry them. But it's amazing how over the years, the taste buds that the Lord has given, they, the, the taste buds seem to mature and to an appreciation for the things that are complex. And so things that were disgusting when we were immature start to take on a different role and you actually start to pursue. Like that's interesting. That's complex. But I have never yet to this day tasted anything that has the combination of bitter honey. And so we're going to encounter John here in Revelation chapter 10, after we work through 9. And he's going to be presented <coughs> with eating this scroll, this picture. And it's going to be sweet like honey, but bitter in his stomach. And I had to think a lot about that phrase and the picture and the, what, it, what it really is describing as a picture of complexity, a picture of maturity. And as we approach the book of Revelation, this is a book for mature believers. It's not to say that I'm the most mature or to say even you are mature, but it is to say these are difficult, mature things. When you first get introduced to things like sugar, you think more is better. And so if they just powder it up and press it into a little Smarties candy and just give me them all, they can crush it, put it in a pixie stick and just, you know, right away, boom. And somewhere along the way you go, that's disgusting. And I don't know when it changes, but it does. And you know, there's a place for difficult things and difficult truths and the complexity that comes with maturity. We have to be mature as we look at Revelation to see God's purposes in judgment. And there's a sweetness to it because you see the promise. He will fulfill all of his good 
promises to his church, to Israel, he will retake the earth. But yet, how is he going to do that? It's in a way that is going to make our stomachs bitter. A way that is going to be a bit disturbing. But we have the maturity to understand this is good and right and just. And he is the worthy lamb who is right to bring punishment for sin and judgment on the earth in a way that we don't have. And you could say it's not a perfect illustration, but we have that concept in, say, just war theory. Or we understand and think of my grandfather, the great generation, the maturity that comes with things are worth fighting for, things are worth dying for. And when you are immature, you go, nothing is more important than living. Nothing is more important than pleasure. But yet they say, no, let's forego pleasure. Let's go forget, forego comfort because something is just and right and true. So take that to the nth degree, the king of the universe who's been the attempted usurping of Satan in the garden and even of humanity and Adam and Eve and ourselves all the way culminating in the cross where they take their Savior and they hang Him on a tree. This war on the earth is just and true and right. But I understand if at times you go and feel comfort and sweetness and encouragement but others you feel a little bit of but ugh bitterness. And that is the picture here we will find this morning, both in the sixth trumpet in chapter 9 and the beginning of the, excuse me, the interlude in chapter 10. So look with me in chapter 9 as we begin and we look at verse 12. As briefly, let me catch you up if you are visiting here for the, the first time and we're talking about this picture in the book of Revelation we're dealing with the tribulation period of seven years and even the two witnesses that are part of the interlude, which we won't get to this morning, talks of the 1260 days. So likely the second half of the tribulation where those two witnesses are ministering. But in essence, after the three churches, we saw what the things are, chapters one and three, and we're in this period of the things that will be in the future, including the breaking of the seals. And so we've gone and we've seen the breaking of the seals in the first seal through the fifth seal, sixth seal. And then the seventh seal is cracked open by the one and only one who is worthy, Christ himself, the worthy lamb who has appeared slain. And then that opens up the seven trumpets. And we're going to finish the first six because then this will introduce, not this morning because of where we're going to have the interlude, but... That seventh trumpet is basically being warned, warned, whoa, whoa, whoa. But it's coming, and it will contain those seven bowls. So that's just a good picture of kind of how do you categorize these things and how do... They're all part of that scroll. They're all part of the seals being cracked. The seventh seal contains both the trumpets and the bowls. Which is to say it contains the judgments, the means by which God is going to take back his world. What we're going to see this morning is that God encourages his people in the midst of extreme judgment by reminding them of his purposes. God encourages his people in the midst of extreme 
judgment. In fact, you could say by extreme, final judgment, by reminding them of His purposes. Because God wants not only those then who have access to His Word to know, but for us, His church, to know as well. And He wants to encourage us. First way that we see encouragement is we're going to see the means of God's judgment, which you might ask and hold that thought of how is that encouraging? Look with me at chapter 9, verse 12. We're going to see God's means of judgment. He's going to take the very beings, these fallen angels that we saw in the first 11 verses are trapped currently in the abyss and he gives the key to Satan and the authority to unlock, which again, the authority given to Satan is still under God's authority. It is, as we looked at last week, as Martin Luther said, God's devil. But he is the king over that abyss and he is going to open that abyss and those fallen angels, those demons who left their proper abode, we looked at Jude and Peter, they're going to come out and they're going to first torment torment for these five months. And verse 5 says, they were not permitted to kill anyone but the torment for five months. And the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. That is to say, they incite fear and pain, but it doesn't end. It just continues. We looked at the description of how do you understand when things are figurative, when things are not, and the Locusts here don't do what locusts do. And it's going to be a similar thought process. They're described in such a way, verse 7, the appearance of horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces like the faces of men. And verse 8, they had hair like the hair of women, and teeth like the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, and many horses running to battle. They had tails like scorpions. Stings in their tails and the power to hurt men for five months. And so the context points us to we're not talking about locusts in the same way in verse 1. We're not talking about just a star. We're talking about a fallen star from heaven, which pictures and triggers in our own minds that of Satan, then the king of the abyss in verse 11. But all this has happened up to this point of these five trumpets, which is progressive in that things are getting worse and worse and worse. And so in the fifth trumpet, they are allowed to torment, but not allowed to kill. Well, all of that changes when we get to the means of the judgment here with this demonic army, which is given the power then, which we've seen the one quarter of the earth already. And there's been lots of death and destruction. But for five months, there's not that, just tor torture, torment. And then death comes again to one-third. It says, verse 12, One woe is past, behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Which is to say, he's saying, why is he describing these three, the fifth trumpet, the sixth trumpet, the seventh trumpet as woes? It's because you don't want to experience this judgment. The kind of judgment that the world has not ever seen. So one is past in the fifth trumpet. Another is coming and we're going to look at that first woe, the sixth trumpet, and then the beginning of the interlude in chapter 10. And so the sixth angel sounded. He sounded the sixth trumpet. And he 
heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who have been bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were released who had been prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year so that they would kill a third of mankind. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million and I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in a vision the horses and those who sit in them. The riders had the breastplates, the color of fire and of hyacinth and a brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of the lions. And out of their mouths come fire and smoke and brimstone. And a third of mankind, mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For the tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do, they do harm. And the rest of the mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of the gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their sexual moralities, nor their thefts. They hear a voice, verse 13, from the four horns of the golden of the altar, which reminds us, this judgment that is coming is an answer to prayer. You go back to chapter 8, and you see, verse 4, as the seventh seal is cracked, the smoke of the incense, if you remember back to that sermon, went up with the prayers of the saints and the angel's hand before God. And the angel took the censer, which is the thing that has the coals that's making this idea of this picture of incense, of prayers being offered up to the Lord. And it's filled with the fire of the altar, which... In this case, and then looking at that temple, that altar, fire of altar that is sacrificed for sin, that is, you and think rightfully so, look at the sacrifice of Christ and he throws it to earth. And following peals and thunders, flashes of lightnings, and an earthquake. And then these trumpets are sounded. And he hears the voice that comes. And so... We understand the means here of God. It's not Him in this way even direct. He's using the very disobedient, disloyal creatures to release judgment on the world. And they're described as four angels in verse 14 who've been bound at the great river Euphrates. It's difficult. We've seen four angels before. Perhaps related to seven the angels that are standing that are supposed to withhold the winds from the north, east, southwest as the four corners of the earth. But these are clearly, if it's the same, they're in a dis different location, but they're bound at the great river Euphrates. Think of, we're not quite there in all of it, but as Babylon begins to take more of a role in Revelation, Euphrates being near there, and they're released and they have been prepared for the hour and day and month and year so that they would kill a third of mankind. That is to say, they're being released after being bound. And they're going to do the very thing that their nature wants to do. It isn't God twisting their arm. It is demons being demons. And it's described as the number of the armies of these horsemen, 200 
million. In fact, he says, I, I heard, I didn't necessarily go and count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I, I heard that number of them, which is to say that is a massive number, which can go out and deal massive amounts of destruction. They're set free. Similar to the demons in the fifth trumpet. It's like a prisoner who committed a crime and is placed in prison. They're jailed and after serving their sentence, they're released. And the very first thing they do is they commit another crime. Perhaps it makes no sense to us, but it is what exactly happens here. They return to the very thing that they already paid the price for. Because, in this case, they are un redeemed and in the angels case which is why I think they long to look at the salvation of you and I they long to look at the salvation of men and women is because the angels didn't get a second chance and so these are unredeemable demons who have only one place left to go which is to follow Satan the false prophet and the antichrist into the lake of fire and so they're going to go and they're going to do exactly what they want to do inflict much damage and as much harm as they can in this sixth trumpet. And so this is how we saw in the vision then. Oh, they just, uh, some people will look towards, is this a question of, is it a human army or is it a demonic army? Um, I believe it's a demonic army, as we'll see in both his description later on. Because it's described as the power of the horses is their mouths and their tails and their tails like serpents. So it doesn't seem like we're talking about human army. It doesn't really seem like it as well because of the excuse me, the reach of devastation. And so he sees in verse 17, the vision the horses who sit on the, the riders that had breastplates, the color of fire, that would be red, hyacinth which is black or dark blue and a brimstone, kind of a sulfur yellow that is descriptions of fire and descriptions of smoke and judgment. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. So again, this is why it doesn't sound, as some people have pointed out, you know, like humans. In a human army, it seems distinctly described as similar to the locusts and the fifth trumpet. But out of their mouth come fire, smoke, and brimstone. And all that is to say, it's all in Scripture to give you a very terrifying look at the judgment that's coming from them. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 18, the third of mankind is killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone, which came out of their mouths. So the torment is over and destruction yet comes again on the earth. You see the power in verse 19, where it comes from. But what's more horrifying than the destruction, it should be for the church today as we look on this, is verse 19, or verse 20 and verse 21. That the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, and remember the plagues, are the fire, smoke, and brimstone. The rest of mankind not killed. They see a third of mankind wiped out. They've already seen a quarter, now they've seen a third. So half of the world has been, of people have been killed. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons, idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. It's unbelievable. John is writing this down, and what he sees is shocking 
yes, is a vision, but even more shocking that you wouldn't think, well, surely, turn, stop this, repent, ask for forgiveness, beg for forgiveness. But this is a testimony to the nature of man, the nature of depravity, that they're not willing, even under this, they want their own independence. They don't want the king to come and rule. They would rather rebel, even if it means worshiping things they can neither hear nor walk so they can live according to their own desires. They did not repent, verse 21, of their murders, their sorceries, nor their sexuality, nor their thefts. Again, I'm thinking of Proverbs 26, 11, um, that as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats a folly. Think of the book of Proverbs. You have your characters, right? You have the wise person, the fool. I would say, in some translations, the naive or the uncommitted one. The book's written to the youth, the uncommitted one, to say, look, this is where wisdom leads, this is where foolishness leads. But the implication is that the wise one is committed to wisdom and that the foolish one is already committed to foolishness. But hey, youth, naive one, you have an opportunity to make a decision here. And this is a humanity that is committed towards foolishness. So you watch a dog return to its vomit and you go, that makes no sense. That's disgusting. That's ridiculous. That's stupid. Yet, that's what their nature, that's what they do because they are dogs. And so in the same way, the fool repeats a folly. Where did idolatry get you? Where did sin get you? Yet, they do it over, they do it again. And this would be an extreme example of that where we may have consequences to sin and we might see that and go, oh, I don't like that. This is extreme judgment. God is betting out by these, this demonic army. There's no wisdom here in this decision. And so, one of the things that we're going to see, especially as we work in a tent, that this should cause us to pause. This is horrific nature of destruction and what is coming and should begin to not just become knowledge and information, but should impact the way we live and the, especially our passion for evangelism and telling people there is a way of escape. But this is still under God's sovereign hand and it is God is the one who sovereignly saves, but he does use means and he uses his church, which of course is our call, is to go and make disciples, teaching and training them all that Christ had taught them. There's reality. The dog, and that's in Proverbs 26, it makes sense. Why? The dog returns with vomit. Because he's a dog. But it's meant to strike you in Proverbs that the fool, that the human, does not see his folly and repeats it. For those of you who know me a little bit better, I've kind of been to training my, uh, my dogs at the moment, my labs. And one of my favorite training phrases is that when you're training a dog, there's two animals. One of you is supposed to be the smart one. And so, you know, we tend to fly off the handle at a dog 
and kind of display, wait, we're supposed to be the smart one here. And the dog's just being a dog. And so I'm not necessarily saying we're, we're obviously different than animals, but it is to say that's the point. We are to learn from mistakes. One should be reading this here and, and be caused to look and evaluate their own life and learn. Looking at this call to say, there is a time coming where no more. Where, as we're going to see, the delay will be no longer. We looked at, at Judges a bit this morning um, and you see the pattern over and over and over again. And this is what it feels like to me. It's going, well, can't you learn? Can't you learn? Can't you learn? But you also understand the purpose of the book of Judges when you see and understand, especially when you think of that audience. And so we looked at Judges 18 and we looked at how it makes a little reference to the fact that Dan, um, that this happened before they were exiled. And so what you learn is you start to see, okay, so... This is post, this, this is a time when there was no king, so the original audience knows of kings. So this is written after that. And then also, this is an audience that knows exile. They know the Babylonian exile. And then all of a sudden, Judges takes on a whole different look. And I'd say there's something similar here. Is there's a, a pleading of history. Not to that generation, because they're long gone. But to the exiled generation of Israel that's about to return to the land, there's pleading from history saying, don't repeat our failures. Yes, God will save. He sends his deliverers, but also understand he is a judge and he will bring judgment. And you see the cycle, the spiral down of them committing sin and being judged by other nations. And then the Lord bringing a deliverer. And of course, the ultimate deliverer being Christ. But I look at Revelation chapter 9 and I see not the past history of Israel to teach us a lesson, but the future that would cause us to pause and learn. Because I can't help but read 20 and 21 and feel a little bitterness in the sense of not bitterness towards someone, but bitter in that this is sour. I cannot believe this is what happened. And you are reminded... Run to the Lord. Repent. While there is yet time. Which of course is going to be the encouragement that I think comes as well. As we look towards this interlude. And we look towards God's purpose in judgment. I think it's an encouragement that we see here. That his purpose in judgment is accomplished. Not only uh, you see through the means. But that it's not devoid of purpose. He is getting glory. He is getting honor through all of this as he exercises judgment and justice and his righteousness on the earth. And he has every right to do so. His holiness, a reminder of his faithfulness, he has promised, he has said warning after warning, you've even seen it throughout this tribulation period, he's offering, extending, we're not going to see it this morning, but even two witnesses are going to go out. And the 144,000 who are sealed are out there. There's opportunities, but yet there is purpose in even the judgment. And this is where I think we go with an understanding of maturity. 
because it's difficult. It's difficult for a parent to watch a child. It's difficult for them to see them suffer, but yet you also understand, well, there's purpose. Again, that's not fun. You'd rather hit it with the simple sugar, but that's not how people mature. So here, this picture then moves on from the sixth trumpet. We have what most talk of as an interlude, where 10 and then 11 with the, the two witnesses is a period probably describing, if you look at the two witnesses, it's going to talk 1,260 days, which, if you did the math, 360 times 3.5 equals 3.5 years. It's pretty exact. But it is to say, probably referring to the second half here of the Great Tribulation period, but this is a pause. And it's a pattern you see over and over and over again as far as you see a pause before the seventh seal. You see a pause here before the seventh trumpet and before the seventh bowl. What's purpose here? What, what is its purpose here? I think it is to call us back to God is doing something and a reminder that he protects. Yes, he's judging the world. Yes, he's judging the way to quicken, but he protects his people. You're reminded of that in verse 1 of chapter 10 that then I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven. And I think you'll see why a lot of people think this is Christ himself. Um, clothed with the cloud. So you go, well, Jesus returning with the cloud. Uh, rainbow is upon his head. There was a rainbow around the throne of God. A reminder that God protects his people in the midst of judgment. His face was like the sun. His feet like pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a little scroll, which, of course, if you understand this, has the scroll from Revelation 5, because it's an open scroll. He placed his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the earth, which is simply a picture way of saying he is the one in authority. And he cries out with a loud voice. It's been called the Lion of Judah, and he roars like a lion. And when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered there. Many look and they see all those imageries and you, 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 you feel the connection to the Lord. Yet, it's a difficult one. And so I'll go, I don't know for sure. It's unlikely, the idea of a strong angel and another strong angel, why this one would be Jesus and other ones would, would not be. Um, it says another, then I saw another. The implication in Greek is that it's a, another of the same kind. So like the other angels, this is another one like them, just a strong one. So it's likely in that sense, not Christ, but definitely you see that the strong angel is coming. He is coming in a way that is representative of, of course, what is all being accomplished, which is Christ is taking back what is rightfully his. If you look back here to Revelation chapter 5, and you see the scroll... For those who weren't here for that, then I saw on the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel, so proclaiming with a loud voice, which would say, this would be one of those cases, this is a strong angel, and he's definitely not the lamb, because he asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. But then I was crying greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop crying, behold. The lion is from the tribe of Judah. The root of David has overcome. So I has to open the scroll and it's seven seals. That 
then becomes the question. Why, in verse 2, if this is the scroll that's been opened that we've been talking about so long, why call it a little scroll? Probably the context here of the picture that's being presented is one of John taking it and eating it. And so it's likely that in this vision here, the scroll is little so that he's able to eat it. But I think it is the scroll that we talked about that has the seven seals that are opened that is the title deed to the universe. So the angel brings it and he cries out with these loud voices and very interesting in verse 4, the seven peals of thunder, which we talked seven early on, the idea of perfection, seven peals of thunder are spoken and do not write them. Which of course is everyone's favorite thing or in every commentary is to go, wonder what those are. If you ask me, I'm going to say, I don't know. It doesn't say what they are. In fact, it says, don't write about them, whether that's because there's purpose in that specifically or it's just so heinous a thing, but there are some things clearly the Lord does not want for his church and even those understanding this during this period to know. And so in that same way, we're left with limited knowledge. They're going to be left with some limited knowledge as well. And Deuteronomy 29, 29 is true for us and it's true for them that the secret things are the Lord's. Which is why in the end, it'll probably all happen in a way that this is all true, but probably in some ways that surprise us or that click and we go, oh, that, that makes absolute sense now. So he's not to write them, because remember, he has to, he's to write down this vision, write down what he sees. And the angel, verse 5, whom he saw standing on the sea, that is the strong angel with it, on the earth, lifted up his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it that, were, that, that are there will be no, or that will be delayed no longer. There will be delay no more. But the days, in the days, verse 7, of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he proclaimed good news to his slaves and prophets. Can't help but look at this verse and be reminded of the Sermon on the Mountain, Jesus saying that don't swear by heaven or by earth. Why can't you swear? Because you can't make it so. I want my yes to be my yes within my human ability. But I can't promise even anything for sure tomorrow. But in that sense, this angel swearing by heaven is by the one who is perfectly sovereign, who will accomplish all his purposes, who created heaven, who created everything. And he's saying, you can take it to the bank, you can be guaranteed the delay is over. Multiple times we've gone back and we've seen <coughs> the patience of the Lord. We've seen how patient he is for waiting for all of his to hear the gospel and to be saved. And we get lulled into thinking, well then, perhaps it'll go on forever and ever. And Peter says it's the very opposite thing. is Don't be lulled. That'll go on and on forever. In fact, one day it'll come. One day he will bring judgment. And he says, this is the time. Delay no longer. And in that day, that sound, he says, the mystery of God is finished as he proclaimed good news to his slaves, the prophets. Well, that triggers something, right? This is a prophecy. He's been quoting prophets. 
And he's saying all those things that you've been reading, all those things you kind of started to try to understand in Joel and Isaiah and Ezekiel. Those things that were promised long ago will all find their fulfillment and I'll delay no longer and the mystery of God will be finished. The mystery of God is used in different ways throughout, especially the New Testament. It's a general reference to truths that God has said and that He will reveal in His own timing. If you want to listen to these later, ask. I don't, I don't have them, but just there's a number of them. But the mystery of the kingdom... Matthew 13, 11. Mystery of Israel's blindness, Romans 11, 25. The mystery of the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. The mystery of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. The mystery of Christ in Ephesians chapter 3 and 5. The mystery of Christ in the believer, Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. And the mystery of the incarnation, likely pointing to the whole gospel in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and if we were to go and we were to study Ephesians, you see Paul sees himself as a steward of the mysteries of God. A truth that God has hidden that he will reveal in his timing. And so you start to think of even, well, what is the mystery of Israel's blindness? It's the question of why did it happen in the first place? What was its purpose? And you go, all the mysteries will be You'll see even the purpose of Israel's blindness in God's perfect plan. We've obviously seen some things that were hidden in the old revealed in the new, like the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ, that we are stewards of that gospel message. And it's pointing to the summing up of all things, Ephesians 1 verse 10, in Christ. wondering why when will God intervene this is comfort to say I don't have an answer for you if it's tomorrow or the next day but I have an answer to say God will intervene one day he has been faithful to his people in the past he's faithful to us as a church and he will be faithful to us in the future because he's the same yesterday as today and tomorrow and so then in verse 8, you hear the voice from heaven. I heard again speaking with him and saying, Go, take the scroll which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So that strong angel introduced in verse 1. And I went to the angel I, telling him to give me the little scroll. So John is obedient. Go take it. That's all he's been told so far. And then it gets a little weirder. So verse 9, I tell him, give me the scroll. And he says, take it, eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Like so much of Revelation brings to mind Ezekiel and Ezekiel chapter 2, that he's to internalize his message. We have the same concept in English of digest. I want, I want to think on that. I want to chew on that. I want to digest that. It's this same kind of picture here that is being described that he is to take the word, he's to take the scroll, and he is to eat it and internalize the realities of these seven seals. And if you try to take these seven seals that we've been studying and you pop it in your mouth and you chew on it and you think about it and you digest it, you will toggle between this is good news, this is wonderful. You will go from crying and praising the Lord that the, the lamb who is worthy on the throne who appears slain is returning. 
He's going to make everything right. You're going to get to the end of Revelation and you're going to see every tear wiped away. You're going to see a new heavens and a new earth and you're going to go, this is good. But you're also going to take inventory and go, there's a lot of destruction on that path towards that. Destruction that is right and just, but the mature person is still saddened by those realities. We don't know all the answers. Why? Why wouldn't they repent? But it's the reality of what we've seen that is prophesied that even back to verse 9, that after seeing all of these judgments, that's exactly what's going to happen. They're not going to repent. And so it sits in our stomachs and is made sweet yet bitter. And then John is told, you're not done yet. You must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. I think one of the lessons from this section, from the picture here, is so often prophecy, maybe Bible study to some degree, you know, people can go, well, all you care about is knowledge, all you care about is information. Well, heavenly minded, you're no, no earthly good. Not if you take it and you digest it. Not if you let it sit in your soul and start to think of, what does this mean? What are the implications? These are real people. These are real human meetings made in the image of God. Because it's easy to start going, this is the future. I don't know these people. It's not part of my family. So, what does it have to do with me? I think if you do this right, if you study Revelation correctly, in a similar way, you digest it, and you're confronted with this reality. And it should go from just knowledge and interest in end times or prophecy to a burden for lost, a burden to preach the gospel, a burden for the glory of Christ. The burden for his church. We want to use passion to say, there is a way of escape. There is a way in which it's just and right for judgment to come. Why? Because there is sin and there is wickedness. But yet, guess what? Romans says that all of us are sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But to be passionate to say, that's the bad news. But the good news is that Christ has bore our penalty for us. He took sin and death on the cross and nailed it there and then was raised from the dead that he might give life. And to learn from 9.20, 9.21, to learn from judges that if you repent from your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you. He is a God who saves and calls his people to Repentance. And then he gives you and I, the church, a message to tell the world. The same message. This is a God who saves. Yes, he's going to judge. Yes, he will deal with sin. Yes, these horrors are coming. But he also desires for people to come to know him, to have a right relationship with him, and to share with him in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we have to, that we've spent this morning to, 
just look to your word to be encouraged in the midst of this final judgment. As we're reminded of the purposes that you have given, that you will be glorified, that you will protect your people in the midst of all of these judgment by rapturing the church, by sealing the 144,000, and even by saving and bringing the martyred saints to heaven. For we know that because of the gospel, that even death has no sting anymore for us. So we rejoice in that truth and Lord pray that these truths would be meditated on, chewed, digested, that they would find root in our souls, that this is a real future with real people that is coming, and that we might find that comforting truth sweet, because we know you will return and make all things right, but yet also recognize the fallen world we live in and the bloodshed that will come from the judgment. And that we might be sobered by it and live sobered by it in the way we pursue relationships and seek to evangelize the lost. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.